these words of God that we read a moment ago, they are truly so very rich and filled with so much more meaning than our simple reading of them will reveal. So today as we continue to study these words of James 5, may we allow our hearts and our minds to go below the surface of these words and to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit as He speaks to us in them. Let me read them again in James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. As we mentioned in the message last week, I've given this series of messages the title, Dispensations of Providence. And last week we began by asking some simple questions about our personal understanding about God and about His personal involvement in these and all the other many ordinary matters and events that take place in our daily life. And we asked the question, is God passive as so many people believe Him to be and especially as they treat Him to be? Believing that He, yes, is always observing, but then also allowing, and that's a special word that people use, that has a lot of possible positive, but also possible negative impact. Where God then is observing, but He allows events and struggles and sufferings to arise and to take place and only involving Himself if we call on Him in prayer. Is that what you believe? Or secondly, do you believe that God is much more up close and personal and more directly involved in each of the circumstances that are taking place? Or then thirdly, is God actually involved long before any of these circumstances ever arise? Was He there at the inception? Did he have his hand in the beginning of any of these circumstances? Now that involvement that I'm speaking about is most often expressed using two words, sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty and providence. And it seems that most folks don't know exactly what those words mean. And I confess I don't have a really good grasp on them myself because I will think I understand what they mean, and then a year later it has honed down even more, and I find that it's different than what I believed before. But as I've studied through the Bible commentaries and read all the explanations that I have from Bible scholars, Bible teachers, it seems that most all of those writers, they truly do desire to know these truths of Scripture and these truths about God and who He is. And they are very earnest in their desire to convey these truths to others with accuracy. But as they attempt to give their explanations, it seems then that 
rationalization begins to take place. Meanings then quickly diverge in all those scholars and there becomes a divide in the doctrinal stands. Now why does that happen? Why does that take place? And I really can't know for sure. But it seems that each of those Bible scholars is like you and me. We seem to need to explain God as being the kind of God that we want Him to be, that we desire Him to be. And so then the explanations that follow follow along those lines of who we want God to be like. And that's often very different than who He really is. And I do earnestly pray that I will not do that as I bring you these messages each week. I do not want to give you the God that I want Him to be. I want to give you the God that He really is. Not some made-up version in my mind of what I'd like Him to be. And I want to encourage you along those lines. If you have a tendency to explain God the way you want Him to be, please don't do that. Please don't do that. This word of truth and God's Holy Spirit will explain it to you before you explain it to someone else. Please go there first. So then, what has been the result of all these many Bible scholars and the efforts of of truly devout men of God? It has been to create several diverse doctrines, the two most common of which fall down within the Reformed doctrine or the Arminian doctrine. And those form the basis for most all of our mainline churches. Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Charismatic, most all of them follow much of those, one of those two doctrines. The Reformed doctrine that our church holds to believes the concept of sovereignty to mean that God really is completely and absolutely in control of everything that takes place on the earth. That's sovereignty. And that providence is the manner in which He reaches His hand in and carries out His divine will. Let me read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. These words are a little bit difficult to grasp, but listen carefully. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith relating to sovereignty and providence. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. goes on to say, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, God being the first cause of everything, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, He ordereth them 
to fall out according to the nature of second causes. Those are the circumstances of daily life that we get involved in. God, in His ordinary providence, makes use of means, the means and circumstances of the day, yet is free to work outside of those, above and against them, at His pleasure. Now the Arminian doctrine expresses a very similar belief in the sovereignty of God, perhaps a little less complicated in its wording. But their doctrine accepts God's sovereignty as being less controlling. He is sovereign, yes, but less controlling, more lenient, allowing men and women, and that's a special use of that word, he then allows men and women to freely follow the dictates of their free will. And then also, you'll note that in matters of what the world calls nature or natural forces, climate, weather, and that sort of thing, that they are able to follow their own course, a course that was set into motion when God created the earth. At that moment that he, as the poets say, spun that little blue ball into orbit, he put a weather and climactic pattern within it and he leaves then the planet to itself. Let me read for you some of the thoughts of the Arminian writers and this principally comes from a group called gotquestions.org. Divine providence is the governance of God by which He with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. Sounds very similar to what I just read. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of His people. God is sovereignly and providentially involved in all of those things. And it goes on to say that this doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed somehow by chance or by fate. Now I agree with everything that's being said right here in this Arminian statement. And it's almost identical to what was said, though in a more complicated way, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But right at this point is where the the doctrine begins to diverge. The writer goes on to say, to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled, God governs the affairs of men and works through the natural order of things. Note those words. Very important. That God chooses now to work through the natural order of things. The laws of nature are nothing more than God's work in the universe. The laws of nature have no inherent power. Rather, they are the principles that God set in place to govern how things normally work. They are only laws because God decreed them to be. Now, the subtle nuances of those words give this implication that during creation, as I mentioned a moment ago, God formed systems and processes that He now allows to govern most all of the occurrences that take place 
each day. Some of those systems men now call nature or natural processes. The implication is that once God designed all of those systems, whether it be the climactic uh, systems, weather and so on, or the attitudes and behaviors of men and women, He then stepped back to let those things take their course, the course that He had put into place. And He does not exercise immediate control over any of them. Now, that's not exactly what this doctrine says, but that's where it plays out in daily living, unfortunately. And that kind of belief that God has simply put conditions and processes into place and He allows them to go according to those processes, that allows for the possibility that God does not directly cause bad things to happen to people, such as diseases, abuse, mistreatment, even as here recently, hurricanes, tornadoes, or the earthquake in Mexico. He simply put this world into motion and now He allows it to run. He doesn't closely control or direct any of those particular occurrences. I'm saying all of this in a way that should provoke questions in your mind because those are the questions that I want us to eventually come to an understanding about from these Scriptures. Now the writer goes on to say, how does divine providence relate to human volition, free will? We know that humans have a free will, but we also know that God is sovereign. How those two truths, free will and the sovereignty of God, how those two truths relate to each other is hard for us to understand, but we see examples of both truths within the Scriptures. God hates sin and will judge sinners. God is not the author of sin. He does not tempt anyone to sin. And He does not condone sin. At the same time, God obviously allows a certain measure of sin. He must have a reason for allowing it temporarily, even though He hates it. The writer goes on to say, an example of divine providence in Scripture is found in the story of Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. God allowed Joseph's brothers to kidnap Joseph sell him as a slave, and then lie to their father for years about his fate. Now here is the volition of men doing all sorts of wrong things. And it just happened to fall together to have Joseph then deposited in Egypt where he became the prime minister and he literally saved the nation of Israel. Now there's a problem with some of that. That's saying that God does not plan or cause these things to take place. He simply allows the free will of all these many men and women, in the case of Potiphar's wife, all of those different things to take place, to suddenly converge at a point where Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt. He only allows people to do the things that their free will dictates. Now, I'm not tossing stones at free will. I have free will. You have free will. But 
it is not the only process that is at work here. And I question these words because God plainly shows throughout these scriptures that He does not put Himself within the position of being dependent upon the free will behaviors and actions of men to carry out His plans when they don't even know what the plans are. It's not as if God has gotten all of these people together and said, you're going to do this with Joseph and you're going to do this with Joseph. None of those men knew what God's plan was. But they still converged into one point to bring about God's desired end. May I say to you that these scriptures are just filled with evidence that God makes a plan. He says that in Jeremiah 29.11. He says, For I know the plans that I have for you. Therefore your welfare, not for calamity, to bring you a future and a hope. God makes plans. And then He directs men's behaviors in order to carry out those plans right on through to completion. Now how God could do all of that, work within the sins of men, without becoming the author of sin, I simply don't know. It's a great mystery. But He does it. He absolutely does it. The Scripture is filled with it. This writer goes on to say, the same kind of thing took place with Judas. Listen to this. The writer says, Another clear case of divine providence overriding sin is the story of Judas Iscariot. God allowed, notice the use of the word, He allowed this free will of Judas to lie, to deceive, to cheat, to steal, and finally betray the Lord Jesus into the hands of His enemies. All of this was a great wickedness and God was displeased. Yet at the same time, all of Judas's plotting and scheming led to the greater good, the salvation of mankind. Because Jesus had to die at the hands of the Romans in order to become the sacrifice for sin. If Jesus had not been crucified, we would still be in our sins. How did God get Christ to the cross? This is what this writer is asking. How did God get Christ to the cross? And this is his conclusion. God providentially allowed Judas the freedom to perform a series of wicked acts. That almost sounds right, but I cannot abide with it. That is that lenient approach to what God's hand is doing. What is God doing? That's what these scriptures are about. These scriptures are telling us what God is doing. That's where we ought to go for the answer to that question. How did God get him to the cross? Here was the most important event in all of history for mankind. The salvation of our souls. And to say that God put Himself in a position to where He had to trust all of these very wicked behaviors of men, especially here Judas, allowed Him to lie, to steal, to do all of these different things, deceive, that God had to depend upon a criminal to bring the salvation of mankind to be just does not make sense. Again, I'm not casting stones at 
all of the Arminian doctrine. That's not. This is the way our doctrines will carry us. They'll carry us over into these thoughts that simply do not make sense. Luke twenty-two twenty-two. Jesus said, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will go as has been decreed. What does that mean? There was a decree about Jesus and what would take place. God decreed that before the foundations of the earth. All of the events that led to this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was decreed ahead of time by God. And when a king makes a decree, it does not allow for the options that some of its participants might want to put into the mix. For all of those behaviors to have taken place, whether it be Judas or Pilate or the chief priests, for all of them to have taken place so perfectly as they had been prophesied hundreds of years before, there had to be this providential hand of God constantly involved, moving this one here and this one here, bringing them to this point of convergence where Jesus died on the cross. God is sovereign. And His providential hand is absolutely involved in everything. I mentioned earlier, if you were to form a business that required ten people to run that business, you would not just start that business and put those ten people in there and say, okay, now y'all make a profit here. Y'all be good. Y'all do things right. Treat each other well. And then leave that business would not last long. It would surely crumble. It needs the hand of the master. It needs the hand of the owner to guide and to supervise moment by moment all that's going on in that business. And so it is with us. So it was with Judas. So it was with this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So then, as we go back and we read these words of our text here in James 5, what do we believe is taking place with us on a daily basis? Are these things that are taking place with us, all the matters that are taking place in your life today, are they simply the free will behaviors of yourself and others that might be involved? Or does God also have His hand intimately integrated into each of the occurrences that are taking place. Again, just as these words here in James tell us, the suffering, the cheerfulness even, the sickness that takes place, even some very difficult health difficulties. What is God's role? What is God's role? We can see our free will behavior and our role, but what is God's role in all that's taking place? Let me read you these words from Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 5. God says to us, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And listen, I form light 
And I create darkness. And listen, I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's what God says His role is. What do you believe His role is? Folks, those words tell us about sovereignty that is total and complete. It's those verses and so many others throughout these scriptures that tell us that God is intimately involved in every detail of life, of every activity, of every event, of every behavior that takes place. Yes, we have free will. Mine gets me into all sorts of difficulty every day. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. His Holy Spirit is always intertwined, intimately intertwined with my spirit. You know what He's doing? He's doing what Philippians 2 tells us. Listen to these words. Where God says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's free will. But then the next words. For it is God who works in you. This, that's sovereignty. That's providential. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. He puts the will into your and my heart to do His will. And without the presence of the Holy Spirit doing His part, you and I do not want to will to do His will. No, you and I are not what some would call automatons. Simply wound up and put out there each day to do exactly what God directs and controls. If that were so, you and I would never sin. But neither are we autonomous. We are not autonomous, free to do all of our free will behaviors, whether those be good or bad. God's good and perfect will seems to fall within the center of those two diverse doctrines. Yes, as as we just read here in Philippians 2, we truly are to work out with our free will all these many practical involvements of daily life. But it's also absolutely so that God is working within us, within those processes, within our free will, to bring about His perfect will. It's as simple as this verse here in Philippians demands. We are to work out all the matters of our day, but guided by God's Spirit. So a closing question, one that I asked earlier. How do you and I, how do you and I get to these conditions that are spoken about here, these ordinary conditions of the day, the suffering, the sickness, the cheerfulness? How do we get there? Are they just random occurrences that just happen to us? If we believe that our God really is sovereign, then you and I must accept that these events are never random. They're not just some molecule that happens to be floating around out there in the sky and bumps into us, causing something to take place with us. But they are being guided. Those difficulties and the suffering and the sickness and the cheerfulness, all of those things are being guided by God's omnipotent power. Yes, our free will behavior gets involved. But above all else, God's hand is there within this mystery. And it's that interaction between 
these two forces that brings about God's will, His sovereignty and our free will, us surrendering our free will to what His sovereign presence tells us. Let me close with these two Scripture verses, ones I gave a moment ago. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Free will. For it is God who works in you. Providence. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And He says to us, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. And I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Let's pray.